Chicago's Black Business Network is giving away free 90-day business directory listings. Did we say free? That's right, free. Get a 90-day business directory listing at chicagosblackbusinessnetwork.com. Expand your outreach, meet new clients, visit Chicago, that's Chicago with an S, chicagosblackbusinessnetwork.com for details. Chicago's Black Business Network, changing the way that Chicago connects to the world. Sonia Cassandra, Purdue founder. Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, all black, all news, all you. Good morning. This is Dr. Davida Francois coming at you from Coa Moxie. And we are going to have a conversation, as I promised last uh, we'll be speaking with subject matter experts, experts, and today we're going to speak with someone who has a good grasp on the issues related to housing and homelessness. And hopefully at the end of this conversation today, we'll be able to offer some community-based solutions to housing, the issues related to housing and homelessness. So... Let me get started. I'll just introduce you to Dr. Geraldine Jerry Palmer, who is a community psychologist and co-founder of Community Wellness Institute, specialized in social research and analysis, consulting and workshop facilitation. While she is also an adjunct professor at several universities, she's worked extensively in the human services sector, primarily in housing, housing policy, and homelessness. She's a published author in several peer-reviewed publications where she discusses the implications of public attitudes on homelessness and the effects of supportive housing on the socioeconomic well-being of people in need of housing stability. I'd like to welcome Dr. Palmer to Cormoxie show uh, to the Cormoxie show of our Conversations Matter, where we keep it Moxie 100. Dr. Palmer? Yeah, I, I, thank you so much. Go ahead. Okay. I, you know, I, I see that you, you're pretty, you have a pretty extensive background that also includes nonprofit management. Chicago's had a historical election lately, and uh, as we all know, and um, I'd like to know if you were asked to be on, um, to be on the transition team since this this current, uh, well, the new mayor-elect is talking about uh, the issues related to housing, what would you do? What what are some of the things that that, uh, you would offer as advice, and especially when it comes to what's called affordable housing? What's affordable? Uh, Sure. So thank you, uh, Dr. Francois, for your generous introduction. I certainly am glad to be here with you this morning and have a little chat about affordable housing and and housing in general. So you asked whether I would, you know, what would be my first, uh, um, you know, thought about affordable housing if I were asked to be on uh, Mayor Lightfoot's uh, team. So first of all, I would run to do so uh, on her transition team, certainly like Mm -hmm. her platform and, um, you know, so I would definitely uh, do that. So in looking at uh, Mayor Lightfoot's uh, platform or, or, uh, you know, around her thoughts about affordable housing, one of the things that I do like is that even as a mayoral candidate, uh, Mayor Lightfoot uh, released a new policy 
to uh, in hopes to create housing that's affordable and prevent homelessness. So, you know, I can delve a little bit more into that either now or at a later time. But in terms of affordable housing, there is a, a definition that comes out of the federal government and specifically uh, HUD, or Housing and Urban Development. And so HUD looks at affordable housing as housing that doesn't cost more than 30% of your family income. And in the cases of rent subsidies, so when we think about tenant-based or project-based uh, uh, rent subsidies, tenants are expected to pay the 30% of their income, and the other 70% is covered by the subsidy. And in essence, it, that's looked at as uh, the person, so if they're, they've got 70% left, and then, of course, they're using that income for food, clothing, transportation, and child care. And I want to uh, also point out that if they're spending more than the 30% overburden, and what happens when that when when that's the case is when you don't have discretion not discretionary income I want to say but a, a rainy day fund then you're using you know the money all the money that you have and say for example you begin you need medical um, uh, medicine or something and you will start spending money. Uh, on that, and then something has to go. Typically, you're going to get the medicine, but you're not going to pay your rent, and that leaves you in a precarious housing position. So, I hope that's helpful in in uh, you know explaining what exactly a formalized definition is of, of affordable housing. Well, you know, I, I'm since you mentioned um, the thirty percent. I'm thinking mm-hmm. about is there any sort of a, a allowance for utilities because we all know in Chicago uh, our utility bills tend to exceed oftentimes more than 30% of, of our income, you know, because it, it's a place where we have winter, winter season uh, pretty much nine months out of the year. Uh, so heating the Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a no. good question that uh, definitely to look at. So I'm so in my uh, you know thoughts or in, in in my understanding is that's part of the seventy percent that you would have left out of paying your 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 mortgage or your rent. Uh, that seventy percent would then have to cover utilities. Is that a big problem? Well, yeah, that's a that's a big issue in Chicago when it's hot. You know, when it's when it's cold and you have to pay those heating bills. So then, you know, that's another conversation we could probably have later too. And that looks <laughs> like what type of income that looks like what type of income that people are getting. And so, you know, looking at it from a living wage perspective, that's why it's critically important that people earn living wages, meaning enough to pay that 30% and out of that 70 has to cover uh, uh, utility bills and, you know, more specifically looking at a, a gas or light depending on, you know, how your your um, your housing is structured in terms of, of heating through electricity or, you know, uh, gas. So absolutely, that's a good question and and one that still needs to be figured out as well. That's interesting um, mm-hmm. because I, I, it's my understanding that um, our legislators have uh, placed in into law that if someone is even late paying uh, their utility bills, that it goes against your credit history. So there's it seems like, and I may be wrong, but it looks like. Oh, you're in this cycle 
with housing, and it's not difficult. And if you're looking at the cycle of how housing is impacted, it's not difficult to see why there's so much homelessness. Absolutely. Um, I think you're totally on point. Okay. Well, um, what is what are some of the things that you think uh, is needed to address a severe lack of uh, affordable housing? Uh, so if we're looking at Chicago, of course, well, right now, my, you know, from my understanding is that uh, the gap between the supply and demand of affordable housing is about uh, 120,000 units right now. And so that's a, that's a huge amount, and, and that comes from, of course, the, the uh, demolishment of public housing, et cetera, and not replacing them, uh, and uh, uh, in general, uh, affordable housing. So when we look at that, I will, will say that from looking at uh, Mayor Lightfoot's policy proposal, she's covered a great deal of what I believe, and I concur what needs to be uh, to happen in trying to close in that gap, and and she's looked, she's looking at um, uh, what is the one thing um, policy calls, you know, her policy calls for new units. Uh, so that's building, constructing new units, and again. Uh, replacing the units that have been demolished. Two is preserving what's out there as affordable, and then of course uh, looking at funding for renovation. But one of the issues with funding for renovation is it 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 should be grants and not loans. And so you know when loans are available and <clears throat> people are eligible to uh, access them or access them, it's fine. Except in the end. Uh, you know, you now you have to pay a loan back, but a grant wouldn't, you know, that would preclude someone from having to pay that loan back. So that's needed as well. I didn't see a lot about how the renovation portion of the, of the proposal would be funded, but I'm looking at it from my perspective and the research I've done in the area is that grants need to happen uh, to that. Another point is <clears throat> landlord partners are critical uh, in the equation to uh, uh, provide affordable housing, and that's, of course, to foster stability. And another that Mayor Lightfoot is proposing is to remove regulatory barriers that could be anything from where land is located. And, again, I hope we have a, another time to expand on some of these things. Lastly, I do want to point out that she is uh, against uh, automatic uh, prerogatives, meaning that right now in Chicago, all the men or all the women are, uh, they have the prerogative to stop or limit real estate development in their wards. And then that speaks to, of course, uh, power in the council as well as, uh, uh, you know, what that entails or what the implications of that is. And so I know that she is looking at uh, uh, trying to take that out of policy as well. Wow. So it appears that she's uh, looked at a lot of things, and Tim, you seem to be following uh, what has happened and what needs to happen. Yeah. Okay. You're, li- you're listening to Core Moxie with Dr. Davida Francois on Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, listening to U.S. Listen to us on Mondays at 11 a.m., every other Monday, that is. And you can visit us at Chicago's Black Business Network. Dot com and stay connected with what we're doing. And we're here talking with Dr. Jerry Palmer, the community psychologist, 
a community psychologist and co-founder of the Community Wellness Institute. And we're talking mm-hmm. about housing and homelessness. So, Dr. Palmer, continue on. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, I mean, I realize that I mean, you, you, you're a wealth of information. Let's talk a little bit about the um, historical uh, residential segregation in Chicago and how this has impacted Chicago and um, the neighboring cities around us. Uh, sure. So can you give us, so I'll give, give us a little this, insight. Go, yep. Go yeah, that, sure. I was just thinking about this as one of those really long conversations or really long answers, but I definitely will try to make it as soon as possible for the time that we have. And again, I, uh, I'd love to come back and, you know, more expand more on it. But so we're looking at, and I think we've talked about it at one particular point housing, residential segregation, historical, you know, segregation that allowed laws such as redlining and restrictive covenants, et cetera, which were enforced, uh, that that forced African Americans to move in in neighborhoods that were uh, of concentrated poverty and, and of course, they remained segregated. So this, 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 I would say this policy, because they actually work uh, legal policies and, and practices, of course, uh, you know, African Americans ended up in segregated neighborhoods. And, and um, what, what the big issue with all of that is, is, is disinvestment from the prior administration to correct that, and that's evident. And I don't know whether or not that's just such a large such a large factor that that it's not been looked at as being able to be solved. But however, uh, you know, it really has to be if we're going to look at uh, equality and equity in housing in Chicago. And so, for example, when the city uh, determined that public housing was a failed project, it didn't necessarily or it wasn't necessarily that way for people who call the Robert Taylor just for example development home. And and so now you've got um you know, you've got people displaced and my understanding again just from the research I I definitely um you know have taken a look at it. In fact I did an unpublished article or working on one right now regarding that uh, uh even though the administration promised to restore or to construct new units, that never happened. And so, again, as as you mentioned, uh, that's a prelude to homelessness. And that was the previous administration, am I right? Uh, well, and before that as well. We're, yeah, the previous administrations, we'll put an S on the end of that, of right. course. Um, yeah, we have to put an S on that because this goes back, you know, and really far. I mean, you know, we're talking history here. And so, yeah, so just administrations um, I'm coming up from um, daily on. Then now we're looking at the fact that, um, uh, you know, we're looking at the, the legalities of residential segregation, and it is hard to, to extricate, you know, that, it, you know, at some point. It's, it's hard. It's probably not impossible and probable, but it's definitely uh, hard to do. But that's the impetus behind where we are today with uh, concentrated poverty and, and uh, residential segregation. And this goes back to uh, Father Daly, so the first Daly 
not the second daily. It goes all the way back yeah. there, right? Yeah, yeah. You got to go back. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. You go got to go back to to the beginning of of uh, you know the construction of public housing and why it was constructed initially and and the disinvestment again and and definitely hold on to that word because that's that's in particular what we're talking about that I believe is is the strong catalyst for continued segregation as well as concentrated poverty. Okay. Okay, and so what mm-hmm. do you think about the um the demolishing of, of public housing units in Chicago and, you know, the spread spreading out of people. Do you think that there was uh any effort into uh creating a better quality of life or or what was all that about? That's very interesting that you should ask that. And again, in the paper that we've been working on for a while uh, to look at the demolishment and the implications of of, of public housing and the demolishment of public housing, I did find some interesting um, uh, factors. And one of them uh, one of them is under the plan of uh, transformation. This is this is the, the former and current administration. Again, uh, we're talking about uh, approximately 16,000 residents uh, were promised that they could move back into, uh, or you know what? Let me put it this way: they were promised what they what was called a right of return. And so uh, this was like September of 2013. The reports that came came out were uh, centered around the fact that there was only probably only 1,800 or so residents that returned, and then uh, CHA, the Chicago Housing Authority, did report that approximately 7,000 more would return, but that never happened. And one reason that it didn't ever happen was because the, the units did not get replaced, or as Lori is saying, that for number one, if we think about this, they did not pres- they didn't construct new units. They didn't preserve the ones that were there. And so now, this is my thesis or my theory is that we've got a, 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 a numbers of uh, uh, people who are homeless at this point from being being displaced in terms of the public housing development. So I don't think that um, or the demolishment of the development. So I don't think that it was very well thought out. I think it was. Um, uh, you know, it fell under a different a different uh, a viewpoint about public housing. Of course, the conversation has been for a long time that it it was failed, or that uh, the um, the structure, the high rises were were um, the problem. However, when you look at new construction that goes up, we must look and we you know think about the fact that they're all high rise. And so something about that is not congruent. Something doesn't doesn't add up when we uh, say that the public housing or you know developments were um, uh, failed because of the structural uh, factors, which you know doesn't been... look like that's true, right? I've been asking that question for the longest. What what is the difference between this high rise and that one? Yeah. So this is the yeah. first time I'm hearing someone right. uh, say that. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. So I think that your thoughts are certainly uh, on point. With uh, could could you know there be something else going on uh, right. uh, in terms of the reason why yeah they were demolished. Great. Okay. So tell me, what do you think uh, about the private privatization of public housing? 
And what's, what's that, happening that, with uh, privatizing? Well, that's one of the things that adds to why they were demolished. And so, yeah, that's, a, you know, leading into that is, is the demolishment, but then coming right along is, is they were actually demolished uh, based on privatization of public housing. And so um, when you look at it, when you look at, at putting uh, uh, public housing in the hands of private developers rather than, you know, uh, under the, the government, now you're looking at a pretty unwieldy process because where is the, where is the constraints? Where are the constraints in terms of, of how you manage that, of how, um, you know, economically? And I, I was astounded at uh, the dollars that the, the developers uh, earned from demolishing those public housing, you know, d- demolishing public housing um, in Chicago. And it's amazing. I don't have those numbers in front of me right this minute. But when I was researching this, again, I was astounded looking at the, the dollars that were um were given to do that. And so that, I think, so again, so what I'm sharing is that when we look at it from that perspective, privatization certainly has perpetuated inequality in terms, you know, economically in terms of dollars, um, as well as, uh, 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 you know, scholars and myself, you know, housing advocates, et cetera, you know, being concerned about uh, uh, housing stock and what happens really with that. And our our uh, thesis is that it's definitely driving homelessness. It, it seems reasonable, right? It seems practical. The other thing that happens uh, when, when you do that uh, demolishment and, and, you know, the resulting from privatization is housing actually served as de facto shelters for individuals when they really weren't living there legally. Uh, many people actually couch surf, they call it, or, you know, bunked up or, or, or resided with others who were leaseholders. And so when they tore them down, not only did the families have to move, but so did others who weren't leaseholders. Hmm. You're listening to Core Moxie with Dr. Davida Fonsoir on Chicago's Black Business Radio Network. Listen to us Mondays at 11 a.m. or visit us at chicagoblackbusinessradionetwork.com to stay connected. So, Dr. Palmer, so you kind of elaborated on on those who may not have been leaseholders in public housing. However, um, do you think that there's a role that um, that the media has played or can play in helping to shape affordable housing? I absolutely do. And not only is, is the media playing a part or can play a part in affordable housing policies, they also play a part in, in most other informing and shaping public policy. So I'll give you just a little uh, example of how uh, that looked in terms of, of uh, the Cabrini-Green public housing development. When when developers are interested, of course, in, in taking land, because that was really what that uh, particular development was about, there's this longstanding argument around that uh, uh, property being so close to the Gold Coast. And so, you know, it's, it's always been looked at as prime property. And so when finally they made the decision to tear it down because of, you know, something that they, they pretty much came up with, that was uh, – uh, 
uh, that was one thing. So then, so once once that happens, the media picks up. And if you are a person, or if you have the power, I would say, or empowerment to frame media, if that's a, a good way to get your point across in anything, as we're talking right now, is to really get the conversation out there in in the public. And so to do that, the media began to call the Cabrini Green development area, Newtown, long before they tore the uh, development, the actual buildings down. And so with that, uh, along came the, the new uh, uh, naming of it so that, you know, people would begin to, to not think anymore that it was Cabrini Green with Newtown. And then in addition to that, there were also uh, marketing. And so, you know, when we look at media, marketing materials came out that showed renderings of Newtown. And purposely, what was left out were mom-and-pop stores and all of the, the familiar surroundings that were there, right, when, you know, that particular community uh, lived there, those that lived in, in those units. And that particular community wasn't, wasn't uh, depicted in the renderings at all. So here's another way that the media frames, and, and this is really called media framing. And uh, a very useful, and of those who know how to use it could certainly um, move and inform policy and move in, 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 in that way where uh, others that don't or don't know that that's so don't have that. For another quick example is uh, bus stops that depicted advertisements. Uh, these were created by um, the uh, uh, Leo Burnett that that showed renderings of Newtown versus Cabrini Green. And so in essence, what you're really doing, and I like this word, I heard a professor use it called erasure. And when you, you are erasing pretty much the memory of something old, and then, you know, in these progression, you are creating something new. And that's, so that's the sort of long story short on that one. And um, there is uh, someone who did an a, a article on uh, the Cabrini Green uh, uh, situation and does a great job in, in uh, discussing how media, uh, media framing can be instrumental in gaining whatever it is that you really want for the public to see. Okay. Well, Dr. Palmer, we'd like to have you come back and talk to us a little bit more about some of these things, these nuggets that you've given us to uh, to contemplate and, and, and see things in a, from a different point of view. And mm-hmm. uh, if, there's, if you have any last comments, would you please offer them and tell us how we can reach you? Uh, sure, yes. I'd just like to put out there that uh, I am the co-founder and managing director of Community Wellness Institute, and uh, uh, for anyone that wants to contact me, please do so at 773-716-4960. Again, that number is 773-716-4960, or contact us at Community Wellness Institute at gmail.com, and visit us at www.communitywellnessinstitute.com. I appreciate so much being here, and I do hope to come back. Thank you very much. You're listening to Core Moxie with Dr. Davida Francois, and I'm here every other Monday at 11 o'clock a.m. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to our next conversation with Dr. Samuel. And uh, and until then, 
We're just going to keep it Moxie 100. Chicago's Black Business Radio Network, all black, all news, all you.